Hey everybody, it's Father Edward Looney here, the host of How They Love Mary. When I was a teenager, I read True Devotion to Mary by St. Louis de Montfort. And when I say read, I mean, I read the words on the page, but I didn't understand every word he was trying to say. As a priest and a Marian theologian, many people have asked me to clarify the teachings of St. Louis de Montfort from True Devotion to Mary. I'm happy to share that I've released a new book with Ave Maria Press, called Behold the Handmaid of the Lord, a 10-day personal retreat with St. Louis de Montfort's True Devotion to Mary. This book explains the basic teachings of this great Marian saint and writer and helps us to understand what he's trying to teach and to know the person of Mary better. Before you consecrate yourself to Jesus through Mary with St. Louis de Montfort's method, Learn his theology with this new book. You can buy it at AveMariaPress.com. And when you do so, you'll save when you use the code BEHOLD at checkout. Hello, I'm Father Edward Looney, and you are listening to the podcast, How They Love Mary, a podcast that I hope will either be the beginning or the deepening of your Marian devotion. Today, I want to focus on the four last things. These are topics that the church really draws our attention to during the month of November as we celebrate All Souls Day, as we come to the end of the liturgical year and begin the season of Advent, and even these themes are present during that season of Advent. Today, Dr. Kevin Vost is joining me. He is the author of 20 books, including Memorize the Faith and How to Think Like Aquinas, and has taught psychology at a Aquinas College in Nashville, Tennessee, the University of Illinois at Springfield, and Lincoln Land Community College and McMurray College. He is also a member of the Research Review Committee for American Mensa, which promotes the scientific study of human intelligence. And his latest book, or one of his latest books, maybe he's come out with with one since uh, this book was published, but it is Aquinas on the Four Last Things, or Aquinas on the Last Things, and so happy to be able to have this conversation today. So thanks for joining me, Dr. Kevin Vost. You're most welcome, Father. And yes, that is the latest book out, though several others are in the works for the future. Yes, you know, as an author myself, I always have a book in the works. You know, I have one coming out in October, or just came out in October, and uh, also just finished one for next year as well. So so there's always, you know, this kind of delay, in a sense, when the author writes and between publications. So uh, looking forward to your next book as well. I, I've heard you many times on different radio shows that I listen to uh, while I'm commuting in my car and and blessed to have the privilege now myself to ask you some questions about Thomas Aquinas and the last things. And it seems that Thomas Aquinas has been influential in your life. Maybe the first thing I want to know is what drew you to St. Thomas Aquinas? Oh, yeah, certainly. I'm always happy to talk about that, Father, because, yes, I was raised Catholic and went, went to Mass each week, Catholic grade school, Catholic high school. But in my late teens, I became interested in philosophy and read some of the wrong philosophers. I read some of the classic atheists, and uh, their arguments led me to believe that the idea of God just didn't make sense. That uh, So I spent about 25 years considering myself an atheist, a person who, who felt I could not, in all honesty, believe in God, 
though I, I never had any harsh feelings towards the Catholic religion or any other, because I knew there was a lot of good there. But anyway, so I spent about 25 years wishing I could believe in God, but thinking I honestly couldn't, until a series of events led me to read St. Thomas Aquinas for the first time. I was 43 years old, and basically I found in Thomas's writings that these arguments of the modern atheists, he had answered them remarkably well over 700 years ago, and pulling from church fathers and philosophers who lived long before him. So Thomas has a very, very profound uh, meaning to me because it was through the stirrings of the Holy Spirit and reading St. Thomas Aquinas that I was able to come back to Christ in the church after 25 years as an atheist. Well, so St. Thomas draws you back, and, you know, I often recall the story of Bishop Barron, that he encountered Thomas Aquinas at such a young age, but he made such an impact on him as a teenager that now Bishop Barron has gone on to write a lot about Aquinas and has been formed in his philosophy and theology and and is helping to form others. And, And that's something that you're doing, especially as you're making his thought accessible, because Thomas Aquinas wrote some great treatises of theology the Summa Theologiae, also the Summa Contra Gentiles, and probably some other works that I'm even unfamiliar with. But sometimes if you're just a novice, if you've never studied theology, and even though Thomas Aquinas was writing these things as kind of theology textbooks, you need some sort of background in order to read Aquinas. He's very philosophical as well. And so you're making him accessible uh, to the modern reader so that they might know the thought of this great saint. And, you know, so he had this impact on you. And maybe we look at the different thinkers over time, and someone might say, well, why care about Thomas Aquinas? He lived in the 1200s. I live today. Shouldn't I be looking at people who are thinking today? But so why should we genuinely have an interest in Thomas Aquinas? Yes, that's a great question, because I think, you know, the, the fundamentals, he will occasionally illustrate some examples, like with the, with the science of his day, the 13th century, if it might relate to astronomy or biology. And yeah, some of those little details, examples, were wrong because we've advanced very far in, in things like astronomy and biology. But when it comes to the fundamentals of theology, you know, our knowledge about God, and also human anthropology and psychology, human nature, I mean, Thomas hit an amazing number of nails right on the head, you know, back in the 13th century, uh, having insights that, that are totally applicable today. In fact, my formal training was as a psychologist. I got a doctoral degree in clinical psychology. And when I read St. Thomas Aquinas for the first time, I thought, wow, he, he is a greater psychologist than any of these modern thinkers that I've read. So, so yeah, Thomas is just, just jam-packed, full of this wisdom that's totally applicable today. Oh, and part of that reason, too, is it's not just, you know, Thomas himself thinking all this up. He synthesized just virtually all of the secular philosophy and the great theology that came before him. You know, he had a very powerful mind, but he borrowed from, you know, St. Augustine and all the Eastern Church Fathers, St. Jerome, all the Western Church Fathers, also from from pagans like uh, Aristotle, who who I respected even during my years of atheism. People like the, the Stoic philosophers, they're in there. Seneca is in there. So when you read Thomas, you are reading like a synthesis of all the best understanding of what it means to be a human being, you know, up to that time. And those fundamental lessons, they still apply to every one of us today. 
And one of the great lessons that our church draws our attention to during the month of November especially is what we call some some eschatology in a sense, focusing on the end times, and but also focusing on these things called the last things. And so what are those four last things? Yes, in, in brief, you know, the church has you know, traditionally described these as a death, judgment, heaven, and hell. And we can think in terms that we're, we are all going to experience... Uh, Three of those, because we won't have it be either heaven or hell, and, and even people who don't believe in the faith cannot deny that fact, uh, the first fact, death. You know, death is there waiting for all of us. So in the Church's teaching, it's always been that, yes, we can look forward to the, the very end of time, the end of all time, you know, when Christ comes back, but, and we don't know for sure when that is, but we also know that every single one of us, we will come to the end of our own individual time. We'll have our own death. So it's very, very important to understand the Church's teachings about, well, what happens when we die, and how do we need to live our lives? How do we prepare ourselves for the kind of a death that's going to lead us to heaven to spend eternity with God someday? And so death, judgment, heaven, and hell, these are the four last things. And Aquinas then treats these topics. They've been a part of Catholic theology for a very long time. And so what sources of Aquinas does he actually address these? What parts maybe of the Summa Theologiae? or um, Yeah, where does he talk about this? What are your sources for your reflections? Yes, great question. And this book, this is one where I very, very closely follow St. Thomas himself. So it's at the very, very end of the Summa, which is like 1.8 million words when you include the part with the four last things. So he, he actually, Thomas died before the age of 50, before he completed the whole Summa Theologiae. But his disciples and followers and friends were able to take his other writings and put them together in the Summa form and create uh, the, the, the rest of his writings on some of the sacraments. He died when he was writing about confession. And this whole treatise on the four last things was put together from Thomas's other writings, so he'd address one, a total of 164 particular fascinating questions about death, judgment, heaven, hell. Uh, some, some of these questions, which are specifically spelled out by the Catholic Church and taught, you know, as doctrine, as dogma, and, and others which were more speculative. We can't know for sure, but even in those questions, Thomas kind of gives you the history of what different church thinkers have thought about it, and, and then what side he comes down on. So, so that's my main source. It's something called the Supplement to the Summa Theologica. It is the very, very last section of that massive Summa itself. Okay, and so we talk about judgment, for example, and we profess our belief in judgment. I believe that Jesus will come to judge the living and the dead. We say that in one of the creeds of our faith, and there are two types of judgment. There's particular judgment, and so that's when we die, so when we undergo that experience of death, the first last thing, well, then we stand before Christ the judge, and we give an account of our life, and that's where we learn heaven or hell. And so there's also then this universal judgment. I, I guess I've never, you know, and I've studied theology for years myself, I've never really understood the distinction between the two. So at the universal judgment, is that simply everybody who is still alive at the time, or is the whole world going to be judged as a whole at that time? How do we understand this notion of judgment? Yes, and, and, and Thomas gives some very fascinating insights, you know, from himself and drawing from others. And, you know, he's making clear with that, with that particular judgment that we will each face at the time of our own death. Yeah, that's when it's determined, you know, whether our ultimate destiny is going to be heaven or hell, though, though we may be in purgatory, probably maybe a lot of us, you know. 
to be purified of, of, of lesser sins or sins that we haven't fully paid our satisfaction for. But, but at that point, too, the soul is separated from our body. So our bodies are still here, you know, under the earth, but our, but our souls have now been freed uh, and have gone to either heaven, hell, or purgatory. And Thomas says, too, so this is when we're, each of us are judged as an individual human being, a particular human being. But then at the, at the end of time, when Christ comes back, the second coming, the final judgment, the general judgment, the, the universal judgment, you know, we have multiple names for this. Thomas tells us at this point, all of humanity, you know, all the living and the dead, we're going to be judged not only as individuals, but as members of the same human race. So we're all there judged together with, with each other. And at this point, uh, our, our souls will be reunited with our bodies. So that's a fundamental distinction there because God crafted us as not, not just spirits like the angels, but in body and soul. So after this final judgment, we will all spend eternity reunited to our bodies. And there's just beautiful teaching about how the bodies of those of us who are going to go to heaven will be glorified, given very unique, uh, incredible, special gifts by God so we can more fully uh, enjoy him throughout eternity. Well, the resurrection of the body, this, of course, we know because of Jesus's bodily resurrection that he came forth from the grave. And so there, there, there's that teaching. And then we also have Mary, who kind of has preceded us on this journey. And, and it's interesting when we talk about Mary, we talk about her immaculate conception, with the, which is a singular privilege of Mary, that only she alone, that she was the one immaculately conceived. Whereas the assumption is a privilege of Mary, but it's something that's going to be experienced by us all. So she has simply preceded us in that unification of body and soul as God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit brought her body and soul into the kingdom of heaven. And when we talk about the glorified body, here's something that maybe people are curious about, at least I am at the very least. So my mother, for example, let's use her as an example. She she had some toes amputated in her life that she was diabetic. And so you think of other people that maybe have had a limb amputated, etc. Uh, what happens in the glorification of the body at that time? Are, do they have those partial limbs, does Thomas say? Or is there kind of this glorification and a wholeness then in the, in the body that is resurrected? Yes, that's a, that's a very important question, especially for people who have suffered such you know, serious physical affliction. And Thomas says that if there, if there have been dismemberments, parts of the body uh, intended to be parts of the body that were lost, uh, they will be restored, you know. Uh, and people who may be paralyzed or wheelchair-bound, you know, they're going to run and walk and be, be agile. All this is going to be perfected in heaven, so our bodies will be as God intended them. And on a, on a slightly different subject, though, Thomas does address you know, certain saints were, were known for suffering uh, death and acquired certain kinds of scars and lacerations, you know, and we know when, when Jesus even came back, you know, the doubting Thomas, Thomas's namesake, you know, was able to, to feel his, put his hand in his side. So Thomas says that some of these saints and martyrs, uh, you may still be able to see the scars they received, but they won't appear as deformities. They'll be like these, you know, glowing reminders of what they did for us out of their love for God. So it is just a very, very beautiful teaching that, that our human bodies, you know, will be perfected in, in later life. And Thomas and other theologians even speculate that our bodies will be brought back kind of at their absolute peak, physical peak, which they say would be like the, the early 30s, like when, when Jesus Christ did his social ministry in, in the time he was crucified. So it's a really beautiful thing uh, to think about. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, for me, I'm 
just at that point now where I'm in the early, uh, approaching the mid thirties. And, and I realize that like my back hurts more and, you know, I have some scoliosis and everything like that. So, so I know uh-huh. the pains of, of these things. And so it's like, yes, you know, it was a lot easier maybe five years ago than it is today. Let, you know, there was less pain. So, so that's always an interesting teaching. And I think some of the mystics, even themselves, they, they kind of witness this, that when some individuals were granted that vision, of heaven that that they said people were young that you know even if you died at 90 you were a young person in this in, in the kingdom of heaven and so that's uh what what some of the mystics i believe uh have said throughout the years and one of the things that in my ministry, for example, there's a, a woman who is blind, and so she's been blind maybe now for five, six years. And I've just always thought about, for example, uh, when she passes, of course, she's many years from passing, but when she passes, what it'll be like for her to see again, that she'll be able to see heaven, that she'll be or the Lord Jesus, you know, especially in that moment of, of judgment, but her eyes will be opened and what she believed in in this life, then you'll begin to see these things. And she'll see them in a, a very new way since seeing was something that was deprived from her in her life here on earth, especially at the end of her life. Yes, well, that is that is a beautiful teaching, a beautiful thing to look forward to. And and Thomas, you know, he 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 goes on in different places about the various kinds of joys we'll experience in heaven. And one he does talk about is just you know simply the fact that we'll be able to to look upon the body of the glorified Christ. You know, we'll be able to to look upon the, the Blessed Mother. Uh, you know, so so even even those who are blind now here on earth, they're going to experience that intense and amazing joy in heaven. And you mentioned purgatory a little bit ago. And so I'm wondering, what does Thomas Aquinas say about purgatory? Was there a teaching about purgatory at the time of his writing the 1200s? Ah, yes. Yes, there was. And at one point, Thomas says that those who deny purgatory deny the justice of God, that this is something that God, you know, has set up to, to, to be just, to, so we can, so those of us who die with, you know, minor stings on our souls can still uh, see him. And, and here's a neat way Thomas describes this. Because sometimes he uses very simple analogies, even though he's this abstract philosopher. He says it's kind of like objects, whether or not they're lighter than air. We might think of a, a hot air balloon, you know. So he said, if you die and your soul has no stains, no, no sin weighing it down, it's just going to rise immediately to heaven. He said, but, but when you die, if your soul is mired by these grave, deadly, mortal sins, it's going to sink down into hell. Uh, but he said the, the, the third alternative, which I think you know, may... Uh, be the case for many of us. But what if you don't have those grave sins on your soul, but you have lesser sins, or maybe you've confessed some mortal sins, but you haven't yet fully done full satisfaction or penance for them? He says, in that case, your soul is still going to rise, but it's going to rise slowly. And I like to think of a hot air balloon like you see in the movies where it's maybe it starts to sink and people have to throw things out to keep it rising. Uh, so in a sense, we can look at purgatory as throwing off those, those bags that are weighing us down as we're purified in purgatory, then we can rise. So so the basic teaching, even for Thomas, was anyone, we, we don't want to go to purgatory necessarily because it will, be, will involve suffering and we'll know that we've deprived ourselves of the chance to see God right away. But everyone in purgatory will one day reach heaven. So it's just, just this wonderful mechanism God has set up for us because you know, we know in Revelation nothing unclean will enter heaven. But God gives us this way to clean our souls uh, of minor sins even after we've died. 
I know that we always love to talk about heaven, and especially when we have a loved one die, we talk about them being in heaven, and it's kind of presumptuous on our part to do so. Uh, of course, we want to pray for their soul, especially if they're in purgatory, that our prayers will help to uh, quicken and hasten their journey into the kingdom. But there's also that other reality, the last uh, of the last things, the fourth thing, death, judgment, heaven, or hell. And so how are we to understand hell or how does Aquinas shape our understanding of hell? You know, I, you know, not sure if he mentions anything about fire or anything like that, but uh, what is hell according to Aquinas? Yes, yes. And in some cases, he, he does deal with issues that have talked about fire and he actually goes into some detail, you know, but he's saying in terms of the fire, it may not be you know, exactly what we know as fire here. And the fire would not destroy the bodies of those in hell, like fire destroys human bodies, because their bodies will, will last forever, too. So it just inflicts some sort of a punishment, uh, a physical punishment. But, but he says that the main suffering of hell is going to be that, that loss of God, knowing that you could have seen God, you could have had an eternal bliss. But because of your own actions, your own decisions, you've deprived yourself uh, of that. Now, the Catechism tells us flat out, you know, God did not predestined anyone to go to hell. He didn't, you know, create us so we could suffer in hell. Uh, any of us who would end up in hell, and essentially it's going to be through our own choice, through rejecting God, through rejecting his justice, and through rejecting his mercy. So, so Thomas teaches about that. You know, essentially, anyone who, who would end up in hell, sadly, it's been through their choice. It's been through uh, grave sin and a refusal to acknowledge it, a refusal to repent of it, a refusal to avail themselves of, of God's love and mercy. And as we talk about hell then, you know, we know that some visionaries saw hell, the children in Fatima saw that vision of hell. And so it is this terrifying vision uh, and this reality that we, we choose it and uh, that we kind of reject God, that we live our own way. And when it comes to some of the mystics, so for example, like St. Faustina, there's something she wrote in her diary, and, and I believe that Jesus told her this, uh, that at the time of death, the soul is afforded three times to have an act of repentance. Now, of course, this is private revelation. It's not the, the regular teaching of the magisterium or anything like that, but, but that you're afforded kind of this last moment that maybe if you weren't ready to die, that God gives you that moment to say, well, do you repent of this? Are you sorry for this? Uh, is there any hope of something like that in the writings of Thomas Aquinas? Yeah, I don't, you know, I, I do not believe he was specific, as specific there as St. Faustina, that revelation to her. Uh, but, but yeah, he is making that point that what matters is the state of the soul at the time the actual you know, time uh, of death, or the very last chance. I don't know if, there, if he talks about a chance after death or not, but one point that Thomas does make is we, we can never know, uh, you know for sure, unless there are certain cases taught by the Church, if, that a person has gone to heaven or hell or purgatory, because you know, we, we don't necessarily know the state of their soul at the time of death. You know, uh, uh, we don't know. Uh, maybe a person who even tries to kill themselves, if it's a drawn-out process, is there some point during that process where they have realized their mistake, asked for God's forgiveness, but it's too late? You know, we, we can't know. So, but the, but the main point, I think, that where Thomas would agree with, think, with uh, what St. Faustina was, was revealed is that, yeah, God is just like continuously 
giving us his, the chance to mercy, for mercy. So if we would end up in hell, it's going to be ultimately some final form of rejection. And I recall in the, the dialogues of St. Catherine of Siena, she said that you know God was telling her about Judas uh, Iscariot. Even for him, he said that, that his greatest sin was not necessarily the betrayal of Jesus Christ, but the fact that afterwards Judas refused to recognize that God would forgive even him, you know, to, to seek that heartfelt repentance. So denying God's justice and mercy, even after the betrayal of his own son. So I think that's something we can all keep in mind that, you know, regardless of how gravely we've sinned, God's willing to forgive us, but we must, you know, sincerely ask for it. It's interesting that you mentioned the example of suicide, someone taking their own life, because this was something that really rattled me in my first year or two of priesthood. I was a parochial vicar in a larger city, and and there were several young people that had committed suicide at that time, and very tragic, of course. And one of them, you know, I didn't know this person at all. Uh, I ended up going to the funeral because some of my uh, students in, in the parish were very much friends with her, and I wanted to go to support them them, but uh, she jumped off of a bridge. And so, you know, as she did that, in my own mind, as it jolted me, I said, well, was there a moment in which during that she there was this regret or this remorse or what am I doing? I'm really going to die. You know, all of that, you know, that those were yeah. things that I've thought about, especially in those moments uh, where a person makes that decision. And uh, we do hope that there is this repentance and we hope in the mercy of God uh, in a situation like that, for sure. Now, this is a podcast about the Blessed Virgin Mary, or I'd like to incorporate her into our conversation. And so when we talk about death, judgment, and heaven and hell, um, how do you think Mary plays into these four things? Oh, yes. And thank you so much for that question. You know, in other writings, Thomas writes beautifully about the Blessed Mother, you know, expounding on the, the Archangel Gabriel, you know, just calling her full of grace. You know, he's saying, you know, Mary was absolutely full of every grace, every virtue, every gift of the Holy Spirit. She's so full of it. He said that the grace uh, so overflows from her soul that it flows into her body. Her body was full of grace, right? So she is actually bodily assumed into heaven, you know, uh, but before the before Christ has come again. Then also it so overflows from her own body that it overflows to all of us. So she's the mediatrix of graces. So so we can pray uh, to Mary. We can pray to Mary when, when a loved one dies. We can pray for Mary's uh, intercession. So so Thomas writes extensively about the power of intercessory prayer to the saints, you know. Uh, he says, you know, we, you know, all, oh, all the saints dulia or honor. But the Blessed Mother, uh, you know, is not God, but she's the highest of the creatures that God has made. So we owe her what he, Thomas calls hyperdulia, or a very special devotion, a very special uh, love and honor. So, so the Blessed Mother certainly plays a role here. She wants us to get to heaven, and we know when we pray the Hail Mary. You know, we ask her to pray for us for now and to the hour of our death. Amen. So that, that first of the four last things of death, you know, we, we pray time and time again, every single time we uh, pray the Hail Mary. And that is something that I often will preach on, especially if a person is very devoted, a very devotional individual. 
prayed their rosary, uh, I'll say, well, we have great confidence in the prayers of Mary, that she was there, that as this individual throughout their life asked her millions of times, pray for me, a sinner, now and at the hour of my death, that Mary was there, she was praying and interceding. And I know, I think it's St. Louis de Montfort that talks about the great battle for one's soul at the time of death. And so to have the presence of Mary there surely is a great help. And I think, too, as we think about judgment, that our judgment can be helped. And, you know, maybe Mary can advocate for us. That's a, a saying of Fulton Sheen, you know, that when he go, when he went before the Lord, he hoped that Jesus would say, well, come on in because I've heard my mother tell me all about you. And so maybe Mary can advocate for us in our judgment. But I, I think too, with her, her life, her example, her virtues, that if we strive to live by the uh, way in which she lives, be informed by her example, model our life after hers, well, then our judgment will be a bit better because we've striven for virtue all throughout our life and that we've tried to be holy just as uh, the Blessed Virgin uh, was in her own life. And so maybe that's a way. And, and of course, we think about heaven. And once we inherit that gift of eternal life, that gift of being with God forever, caught up in the beatific vision, well, then uh, we'll be there with Mary and the angels and the saints. And maybe that's something to talk about. Can, can you tell us what exactly do we mean by the beatific vision? Uh, this is something that I'm sure Aquinas must expound upon. Oh, yes, yes, because that, that was the thing that, that he, he kind of valued above all else on, on earth and in, in heaven is the beatific vision. And, and just briefly, you know, we talked about having these glorified uh, bodies, you know, so we will see each other in our bodies. We will see Christ's body. We will see the Blessed Mother. But the, the essence of God, the Godhead itself, Thomas says, is beyond the power of, of physical eyes. But God will grace us, our intellects, our, our, the highest parts of our soul, with the capacity, as much as we're able to contemplate it, to grasp kind of the, the essence of God. And, and there's a beautiful place where Thomas writes about this, where he says, well, basically, uh, every, you know, there's a myriad of created things, right? The whole universe. From, but anything that's, that's awesome and majestic, from mountain ranges to the stars, to something as simple as a little puppy dog or a newborn baby, every bit of that goodness in some way mirrors the goodness that's there all in one in God, because it all comes from God. So when we can get this you know, glimpse of God's essence in heaven, it's going to be absolute and total fulfillment. You know, all the good, everything that that has awed us, that has made us feel wonderful, it's going to be there when we experience God. So it's just, it's just very, very hard to fathom. I mean, some people talk about, you know, have, have parodied heaven as being a boring place where we're going to just strum harps all day. And, and Thomas says, you know, no, it's going to be the fulfillment, you know, of all desires, everything that's good on earth and more. Uh, it's all going to be there in God, you know, for us uh, for all the time. And he said, so sometimes, yeah, we, we will be breaking out in praise uh, because we'll just be so awed and so overjoyed by it. It's interesting that you talk about the experience of heaven, what heaven might be like, because as a priest, I've heard many, you know, if we call them eulogies or uh, memories or whatever the case is that an individual gives about a loved one, that they will often say, oh, well, this person is up there fishing now or, you know, enjoying whatever or, you know, so, so what, how do we respond to someone that maybe has that position like, oh, our loved one is up there just enjoying what they enjoyed here? here on earth. And, and maybe secondly, to add to that question, 
So Jesus, of course, in the gospel says something to the effect of, you know, in heaven there is no marriage. And so when that question was, well, who who's wife is this person going to be? And so will we recognize our loved ones in heaven? So two questions, how do we respond to to what heaven is like? Uh, Do we recognize our loved ones? Yes, yes. And, you know, uh, hoping I don't misrepresent Thomas, you know, I think, you know, one of his points is, yes, we will actually have these glorified bodies. So we will do physical things. Now, will we actually fish? Now, I know Thomas teaches that we won't need to eat because our bodies will be impassable. They're imperishable. They won't degenerate. They won't, we won't need to take in food to keep them from perishing. So he said we won't have to eat. He said Jesus ate when he came back to show his disciples that he really had a physical physical body. But, but Thomas argues that we won't need to do that. So, But what about—here's the way I would try to answer. That man who, who loves to fish, what is he getting out of that fishing? Maybe he's just enjoying being there in the midst of nature, being in a relaxed state. You know, I would, I would hypothesize that whatever joy— fishing brings a person, they're going to have that, you know, that experience on steroids in heaven. You know, it may not come through the actual act of fishing, but but it'll be far more than you can imagine, the same kind of fulfillment. And as far as like, you know, yeah, there will be no marriage in heaven because, uh, and, and Thomas is too, there'll be no future human beings in heaven you know, at, at that point uh, in time. But yeah, we will recognize, you know, and enjoy each other and, and uh, you know, all our loved ones, yes, that that will be there if, if those those of them who are in heaven. So yeah, we'll we'll be actual bodies. We'll just be at our absolute uh, perfection there. But I will say too, you know, with some of this topic, of course, you know, Saint Paul tells us that you know we kind of see through a mirror dimly on earth. Uh, in, in heaven, we see God face to face. Then we're going to get these final answers. But but judging from what Thomas has written, I think those final answers are just going to blow us away. I mean, we literally are unable to imagine what the joy will be like. Maybe my final question. And again, a lot of this conversation has focused on things that I've struggled with and I've tried to understand. And so you're really helping me, uh, you know, in my ministry as I preach, as I help other people and things like that as well. But one of the things that I've come to understand, or, or I believe that I was taught, was that, you know, at the end of time, so when Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead, this universal judgment that we talked about, that really there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And will we populate the this earth again, in a sense? Will heaven be here? Or or what What are we to make of that? Because some reason, for I recall something about like a new Eden and it being here in this place that we are now, that everything will be renewed. Is that something or am I just making this up? No, no, you're, you're not making it up. You know, and over the years, there have been some interpretations like for the millennia, so there'll be like a thousand-year period at a certain point where people will, certain people will just be here on earth. And, and Thomas is not talking about that, but, but he is quoting Scripture and Church authority. He is talking about a new heaven and a new earth. In that, you know, our bodies are going to be perfected and glorified. Thomas writes that the entire physical universe will be as well. So everything will achieve its final, you know, ultimate state of perfection. All imperfections will be gone. So, so yeah, so one thing Thomas is teaching is that, Though, you know, we're soul and body, uh, you know, but we're going to live as both throughout eternity. So there will be physical things. Those glorified bodies, he said, in a way I compare us to, to the Flash, you know, the superhero. We're going to be able to move at amazing speeds. You know, we might find a particular galaxy, you know, far, far away, of intriguing to us, and we're going to have the capacity to, to get there. So if I understand Thomas, yes, the universe itself will give us more beauty than ever before. 
and we'll be able to see it with more powerful vision than ever before, and we'll actually be able to physically get to great distances in a very short period of time. So, so the way Thomas has described that, I think it's just utterly glorious that not only is God going to perfect us and let us see him, he's going to perfect the, the entire universe you know, for us. So today on How They Love Mary, I've been speaking with Dr. Kevin Vost, and he's been talking with us about St. Thomas Aquinas, the thought of St. Thomas Aquinas, this great theologian who has really influenced so many individuals uh, since his lifetime and continues. People are trained into mystic theology and to mystic philosophy. I took several classes on St. Thomas uh, in my schooling as well. And so he's been helping us understand the four last things. Dr. Kevin Vos is the author of the book Aquinas on the Four Last Things. You can buy it, find it at uh, Sophia Institute Press. You can also get it wherever you buy your Catholic books. If people want to learn more about you, Dr. Vost, how can they do that? Well, my website is drvost.com, just D-R-V-O-S-T.com. It includes a comment box at the bottom, so if anyone would like to contact me, I'd be happy to respond. That's wonderful. And I'm so grateful that you took time today to answer some of these questions that I've pondered over for a long time, and you're helping me to see with a greater clarity now. So thank you so much for joining me today on How They Love Mary. Oh, you're most welcome, and thanks so much for having me, Father. God bless. Hey, thanks so much for listening to today's show and for all the many ways that you support the podcast. If you want to help out the podcast, be sure to check out Sock Religious. I love their socks. I love their shirts. And so go over to Sock Religious, use the link in the show notes, and buy some holy socks or some holy shirts that you can wear to evangelize your family and your friends. If you also want to support the podcast, I invite you to please share the podcast with your friends or on your social media platforms. Rate or review the podcast on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't mind, please follow me on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. My handle is at FR Edward Looney. You'll see all of the posts, all of the content that I put out each week by following me there. Thanks so much again for listening today. Know that I am entrusting you to the heart of Mary, asking her to pray for you this day and every day. And if you don't mind, say a prayer for me too. Let us remain united in prayer to Jesus through Mary. God bless.